Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. On this Thursday, April 1, and this is no April Fool's joke, welcome to the Bill Press Pod Roundtable. One day early this week, but still lots and lots to talk about. This busy week included perhaps the biggest and boldest new government initiative since the days of FDR, President Joe Biden's Rebuild America plan for new highways, new bridges, a new electric grid, new broadband nationwide, new electric cars, trucks, and buses. But does it have a prayer of getting through Congress? Meanwhile, all eyes glued on Minneapolis, where in effect, all Americans now sit on the jury in the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin. Red state and blue state governors ignore pleas of the CDC to keep mandatory masks in order. Leading Trump supporter Matt Gates, no, not today's panelist, Matt Gertz, is under investigation for sex with a 17-year-old. Sorry, Matt. And it's opening day for Major League Baseball to almost empty stadiums nationwide. So let's get right to it with Jennifer Habercorn, congressional correspondent for the LA Times. Hello, Jen. Hi, Bill. Good to have you back. Thank you. Matt Gertz, aforementioned, a senior fellow at Media Matters for America. Hello, Matt. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you. And Alex Seitzwald, political reporter for NBC News. Hello, Alex. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. So it was 40 years ago that uh, President Reagan, in his inaugural address, told the nation, a government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Uh, Matt Gertz, Joe Biden... <laughs> came out with just the opposite message yesterday with this astoundingly big uh, infrastructure plan that he introduced in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's Is the era of big government back big time? Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see how uh, this moves through Congress. But yeah, this is a wildly ambitious package that would do quite a lot to get Americans uh, back on their feet. Um, and uh, I think, you know, uh, it was probably not necessarily what folks were expecting from Joe Biden back during the uh, Democratic primary. Uh, and yet, yet here we are um, with him at the head of a government that is now going to try to pass hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, funds for clean drinking water and high-speed uh, broadband for uh highways and bridges and roads and public transit and electric vehicles. Uh, it's really quite something to see. Right. And he went to to make this introduction, interestingly enough, uh, to a union training plant for the carpenters out in Pittsburgh, once again, identifying with working class Americans. Uh, here is the president stating where he is and why. I'm a union guy. I support unions. Unions built the middle class. It's about time they start to get a piece of the action. And today, I return as your president 
to lay out the vision of how I believe we rebuild the backbone of America. It's a vision not seen through the eyes of Wall Street or Washington, but through the eyes of hardworking people. People who get up every day, work hard, raise their family, pay their taxes, serve their country, and volunteer for their communities, and just looking for a little bit of breathing room, just a little bit of light. Just a little bit of life, but Jennifer, it does, uh, even though the president says this is focused on working class Americans, it does need the support of members of Congress. What do you see and hear there? You're right. Um, you know, this is going to be really tough to get through Congress. Um, I mean, just keep in mind the very slim majorities that Democrats have in either chamber. This is likely to be one of the last major pieces of legislation that Nancy Pelosi works on as speaker, given that she, you know, years ago now indicated that this would be her last term. So she's going to put all of her muscle into this. Of course, we know that it's very hard to bet against Nancy Pelosi getting (laughs) a piece of legislation done, but it's going to be really difficult. I mean, already progressives are really happy with the plan, but they're demanding that it's that it be even bigger than what Biden proposed. Moderate Democrats are going to be very skeptical of the huge price tag and um, what they are going to call tax increases. And we have earmarks. Earmarks are back. So every member is going to be lining up for a piece of this, quite literally. Um, And so if we look at the broad map of what has to get done between Biden introducing this and Biden signing a bill, it's going to be vast. In the House, Pelosi has the wiggle room of three members. And in the Senate, of course, we know that it's 50-50 divided. So every Democrat has to be on board. But just to follow up on that, Jen, you're absolutely right. And I see a lot of stories about that as if this is like really new and bad. But isn't that, in effect, what the legislative process is all about? You start out with something and then you compromise here and there and drop this and add that and end up with a package that may not look exactly what you put in the first place. Absolutely. They call it sausage making for a reason. It's not pretty to look at. Um, And the question is going to be whether they get it done. No one's going to, if this gets signed into law, Pelosi and Schumer are going to have a huge accomplishment on their um, record. And no one's going to remember the very difficult process of getting it across the finish line. It's going to be a question of whether they can actually do it. Well, Alex, when you look, though, nationwide, I just saw this morning, the polling on this uh, in terms of public support outpolls even the stimulus, the the $1.9 trillion stimulus. Polls are up around 80 percent in support of this infrastructure package. Doesn't that make it a little perilous for Republicans just to be all out against it? Well, they are starting out all out against it, or at least that's that's <laughs> the way they're right. feeling. Uh, uh, former President Trump put out a statement yesterday, uh, a, a fairly quick response to this, considering that his kind of rea- reaction speed has been a lot slower since he left the White House and been kicked off of Twitter. Uh, just. But Alex, wait, wait, Alex. I thought he was. I thought Trump was for infrastructure. Uh, he does. Like, he likes <laughs> to build things, uh, but I don't think he'll be allowed to put his name on any of the things that they want to uh, build now. Did didn't he promise a one trillion dollar infrastructure plan on day one? Uh, well, th- th- he may have done that, but he is now saying that this infrastructure plan uh, will destroy the country and. Uh, make China very happy, essentially. So I think that was a big signal to Republicans in Congress who are obviously still uh, very interested in what 
the former president has to say that they're, they're not going to get a lot of support here. Uh, and, you know, the big piece of this, we've been talking about the spending side, but the pay for side is going to be the politically much more challenging thing, which is the tax increases. They want to uh, potentially raise the top corporate tax rates, 28 percent up from 21 percent right now, and uh, potentially raise taxes on wealthy Americans. Biden promised on the campaign to not raise taxes on anyone making less than four hundred thousand dollars. So the the polls so far have mostly focused on, you know, oh, do you support uh, new trains and highway improvements and all that sounds great. But I, my suspicion is that once, you know, a hundred million dollars of Republican attack ads hit the airwaves in the next few months, uh, those numbers might change, especially as they're focused on the tax increases. And and this is going to be several months, unlike the stimulus where, you know, they, they rushed mm-hmm. it quickly and it ended up basically the same as what Biden promised with just a few tweaks around the edges. The white house is now saying that they're open to work, to working with Congress. It's likely going to change a lot. Uh, Pelosi set the initial timeline for July 4th, um, which even some people think is ambitious. So we're going to be talking about this for months, and that's going to give the opposition a chance to you know, build their case and uh, entrench their members. Uh, yeah, Matt, uh, isn't it sort of a catch-22 that the Republicans are, are putting forth here? I mean, they're against raising the taxes, but if Biden said, okay, we won't raise the taxes, we'll just borrow money, then they're going to say, no, you can't do that because that's going to add to the deficit, right? I mean, so... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of tensions in the Republican Party position right now, not least of which is uh, they're theoretically claiming to be a workers' party. Um, And so now they're going to oppose a bill with a huge amount of money for uh, good-paying construction and other infrastructure jobs because they don't want to raise taxes on people making over $400,000. You know, I think they'll do that uh, because they're largely beholden to their base and they know that uh, saying no is the best way to avoid uh, tough primary fights. But I don't think that's going to be a terribly compelling message for the rest of the country. Uh, They may not necessarily care about that. But I mean, you know, I think uh, it's not exactly uh, raising money on the average American here. We're talking about increases mm-hmm. for uh, you know, corporate taxes uh, and various others that uh, hit uh, overwhelmingly um, the wealthiest, uh, which is, uh, frankly, a popular position. The idea that uh, people who make over $400,000 aren't paying enough in taxes is uh, generally accepted. And so it, it might cause some uh, trouble in Congress trying to work that out. And that's something that the Biden administration and, and Pelosi and Schumer will have to do because they, they are going to have almost no margin um, for error here. But I think at some point, the momentum behind getting something passed is going to make sure that something gets passed. Um, whether it'll look uh, exactly like what's been rolled out now, um, it, I think probably not. But I think uh, something is going to come through. So, Jennifer, I'm looking on the front page of the New York Times this morning. Um, uh, this, it is astounding, the, the breadth and the reach of this plan, everything that's included in it. Uh, but it includes new money for roads and bridges, public transit, passenger and freight railways, airports, I'm just reading down the list here, waterways and ports, public schools, childcare facilities, veterans hospitals, community colleges. 
it's certainly not impossible that some Republicans in the Senate will find that something they could support. Would you agree? I mean, the idea, they need 10 votes, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not an impossibility. Uphill, but not impossible. Would you agree? Or do you think um, it's... I think it's a pretty steep uphill. Um, <laughs> Even given all, everything that's included. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. It's it's a kitchen sink approach. Democrats are literally throwing almost every policy area that they can imagine into this thing. But for Republicans, that's where it almost becomes too difficult. I mean, Republicans like the idea of breaking legislation into small parts. They don't want it to add to the deficit. Of course, that's because they're in the minority right now. So if 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 you're a Republican looking for a reason to vote against this, they're basically providing you a whole, you know, uh, smorgasbord of opportunities to vote no. And even Mitch McConnell yesterday was at a press conference and was asked about um, a bridge in, in Kentucky that apparently is um, in horrible condition. And he said, yes, I'm sure, you know, if anyone's putting money toward bridges, that bridge is going to be on the list. But here's my laundry list of reasons why I wouldn't vote for the bill. So I think we would see what happened in the um, COVID bill that just passed, which is Republicans vote no, but yet they want to tout some of the benefits to their constituents. Because, of course, in a piece of legislation that big, there's going to be something in there you like, but the things that you don't like are going to outnumber them for Republicans, at least. Yeah. And finally, on this topic, uh, Alex, I want to circle back to a point that Matt made uh, right at the very top. But this does say something about the Biden presidency, does it? I mean, we did think during the campaign that Biden were elected. He's an older guy, cautious guy, a little transition, you know, just to kind of get us over the hump here out of Trump into uh, whoever's going to carry on. Uh, but he, he's he's determined to make it, it seems determined to make a bigger impact in the FDR and LBJ mold. Absolutely, Bill. I think it's been one of the, the biggest surprises, uh, kind of a meta story of the Biden administration, which is how happy a lot of progressives are so far about his cabinet uh, appointments, his executive actions, and the legislation that he's pushed uh, so far. You know, whether, We'll see if this one is successful, but just, just what he has laid out uh, as a starting point. I, I think the, the big... Um, one of the big reasons we got there is that Biden and a lot of the people around him were in the Obama White House in 2009 and 2010. And there's come to be a kind of general consensus in the party that uh, Obama was did not act uh, quickly enough, was not big enough. He was spent too much time trying to win over Republicans and ended up um, costing opportunities potentially to, to pass stuff that pretty universal agreement that the stimulus package the then in the Great Recession was $778 billion, was not quite big mm -hmm. enough. Uh, so yes, he he has gone much bigger than a lot of people expected. It's, it's almost like a, a Nixon goes to China moment or, uh, you know, a, 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 the, the, the Mario Cuomo thing of campaign and poetry and governor prose, he, he campaigned in moderatism and is governing in, in progressivism. Uh, and I think he can get away with that because he is still viewed, his brand is so much as a moderate, as a kind of, you know, steady force that he can propose this stuff without having the the kind of socialism tax and spend liberal lib, uh, label stick as, as well to him. 
Right. I think he senses that the moment is right to go big and bold, and he's uh, determined to do so. Uh, on a couple of other issues that are on the president's plate, they've sort of been overshadowed uh, this week by other events. But we are still, of course, dealing with COVID. And the tension there, um, Matt, is um, between the president, the White House, and the CDC and the nation's governors who are itching to open up and the CDC and the White House saying, please go slowly. Here is uh, Dr. Walensky, head of the CDC, yesterday again urging people um, to, to get vaccinated and what that means and also urging governors to keep the masks on. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. And she went on to say, but we please ask the governors to keep those mask mandates uh, in place. Matt, this is largely a PR war as to the what the masks do. Who's winning this war? I think it's going to come down to the wire. I mean, we are really, we've got the end in sight now. Um, you know, we have a series of very effective vaccines that are rolling out across the country. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as we were starting uh, this interview, I got an invitation to uh, finally make a uh, vaccine booking in D.C. And so I, I am now uh, on the on, on the list to get one. Congratulations. That's Thank a, you that's very a big much. Moment. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and, you know, they, they are very effective. They are very safe. Um, but there is still a bit of a lag getting them out to the American people. And so it's important to make sure uh, that people are taking precautions in these final weeks uh, before uh, vaccines are available to everyone. Um, and so I, I think that is that is the uh, battle right now to try to convince people that the end is very, very near um, if we can all just kind of hang on uh, just a little bit longer. Right. Uh, and Jennifer, this it, it, it seems that the President Biden understands that this is his number one priority. Uh, he's up the goal from 100 million in 100 days to 200 million in 100 days. Every adult in America eligible for the vaccine by May 1. Um, he, he's sort of betting his entire presidency on getting on top of this co uh, COVID correctly, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, if we think about the, uh, you know, just going back to the infrastructure package for a moment, I mean, that's going to be, as you, I think, correctly framed it, um, you know, one of the most significant pieces of legislation since the New Deal. And um, that's all going to be framed on the success or failure of uh, bringing back the economy. And if COVID isn't dealt with, you know, there's no chance of bringing back the economy. So um, these pieces all fit together. And I think it's exactly right that his presidency is going to hinge on the success or failure of, you know, stamping out COVID and bringing the economy back. Uh, and the other issue, um, Alex, that uh, the White House has had to deal with, um, maybe one that they didn't expect they were going to have to deal with so soon, is what's happening at the border. Um, looking at that, how do you rate uh, how the Biden presidency has dealt with what I think we could agree is a crisis at the border? <laughs> 
Not the first time we've seen it, but first time in the Biden administration. How are they how are they doing? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those uh, kind of unsolvable issues that have bedeviled multiple administrations, and you're going to get bl- this is this is the the burden of of being the president, right? Heavy as the crown, the the buck stops there. Uh, you whether it's your fault or not, you you get blamed and you bear responsibility for what the government is doing, and this is the United States government who is putting children uh, in these overcrowded facilities during a, a global pandemic. And I, you know, I, I think he gets um, some leash, some leeway here because he just came in. Uh, he's taking over from an administration that was not particularly interested in, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, solving this uh, in a the most humane possible way. Uh, there's a surge of people who have come expecting incorrectly that they would be treated, you know, substantially differently and be, be welcomed in. Um, so I, I think he he has some uh, of a uh, some time to to try to fix it, but the time is is running out quickly. And I mean, these pictures are just heartbreaking. Um, so I I suspect that they are going to try to you know turn things around. And things will improve, uh, but the, the the I think what what will ultimately relieve the pressure is just the kind of natural seasonal flow of migrants. Um, they tend to come in the spring at the beginning of the uh, agricultural season and then uh, mm-hmm. drop off. And so, you know, maybe once um, that natural ebb changes and once the word gets back to the, the countries that these people are coming from that, uh, you know, don't come, it's not, it's not as, as good as, as we hoped, then um, that will maybe lessen the pressure there and distract uh, and, and, we, and we can move on to other issues. That's certainly what the Biden administration uh, is is counting on. Today's panel, today's roundtable, Jennifer Habercorn from the LA Times, Matt Gertz, Media Matters for America, and Alex Seiswald from NBC News. Let's take a quick break, and there are lots of other issues to talk about. We'll get to as many of those as we can on the other side of the break here on today's The Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the good members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW, under President Mark Perrone. They're the good people who take care of us at our great retail chains like Nordstrom's and Macy's, at the big grocery stores like Safeway and Ralph's, uh, our chemical workers, cannabis workers, distillery workers, those who uh, staff the meat and poultry processing plants across the countries, all of them on the front lines in this war against COVID. We salute them, thank them for their good service, thank them 1.3 million strong for their support of the Bill Press Pod as well. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. 
write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back with uh, today's roundtable. Here it is. We've got with us Alex Seitzwald from NBC News, Matt Gertz, Media Matters for America, and Jennifer Habercorn from the LA Times. Uh, well, where do we start? All right, we got to start with uh, Matt Gates, a.k.a. Matt Gertz. All right, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. You must you're at the receiving end of a lot of hate mail over this story, right? I am. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, on <laughs> yeah. Twitter, uh, I am at Matt Gertz, uh, and the congressman from Florida is at Matt Gates. And because <laughs> of the ways that uh, Twitter search works, sometimes people who intend to shout uh, very mean and at times profane things uh, at Matt Gates on Twitter, accidentally end up sending those messages over to me. This has been happening since 2017, uh, when the congressman started making regular appearances on Fox News and CNN, um, you know, generally uh, uh, pr- particularly abject uh, Trump defenses and the like. Uh, and so I would start uh, getting nasty messages about that um, and has sort of escalated over time until it is now a, a running Twitter shtick for everyone to uh, commiserate over what happens to my menchies whenever he is in the news. Uh, and so uh, on you know, Tuesday night, the New York Times uh, reported that uh, Representative Gates was under investigation related to a uh, sexual relationship with someone who uh, is underage. Um, The congressman has denied this um, and claimed that he uh, is also being uh, extorted by people who um, somehow threatened to release the information about this. it's all a, a very complicated story. What matters for me is that my menchies are absolutely mis- miserable. <laughs> it's really a shame. <laughs> well, he did, as you point out, he, he, he uh, somebody said this morning, his approach, Gates's approach to scandal is the Trump approach to scandal, which is never deny, but attack and keep talking, 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 including going on to uh, Fox News with Tucker Carlson the other night. Uh, to deny it and and um, uh, assert that he and Tucker actually had dinner with this girlfriend of his. If you just saw our Matt Gates interview, that was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever conducted. <laughs> that story just appeared. He immediately called Matt Gates and asked him to come on and tell us more, which, as you saw, he did. I don't think that clarified much. 
Uh, and for me to clarify, that's Tucker, obviously. Gates before that had, had denied it and asserted he had this dinner with Tucker Carlson. So, Alex, uh, Matt Gates didn't seem to help himself very much here. Uh, no, Bill. It was a very strange interview. And when Tucker Carlson is uh, looking, he was wearing the expression of a person trying to decipher the plot of Tenant during the entire Matt Gates interview. He just looked absolutely <laughs> uh, befuddled. And then he said that afterwards. And when Tucker Carlson says that about Matt Gates, you know Matt Gates is in trouble because <laughs> they share their, the politics, they share a, a, a worldview. But I, I think that interview is a, is a little bit of a microcosm of the problem, the political problem that Matt Gates now has, which is, as the reality TV stars say, he, he didn't come here to make friends. He, he didn't come to Washington to make friends. He is kind of known, he's long been known on Capitol Hill as a you know kind of self-promoting uh, guy who, who doesn't really look out for anyone else except for himself, just wants to get on camera, uh, will do anything to, to get controversy, get headlines, create a viral moment. And so he kind of tried to drag Tucker into that uh, by saying, oh, remember that time we went to dinner with with this woman? And he also said, you've been accused, Tucker, of uh, horrible sexual <laughs> right. crimes, yeah. which Tucker looked like he wanted absolutely nothing to do with. So, uh, you know, I, I yesterday I spent a little bit of time just uh, talking, reaching out to some, you know, Republican sources. And I was surprised by how many people, uh, mostly on background, not, not on the record, were willing to just absolutely shiv him you know th these are people who agree with him politically people who worked for the trump campaign people who are completely on the same side of his, him politically but who feel like uh, he's a bit has always been a bit of a laughing stock a bit of a you know at least engendering eye rolls uh mm -hmm. because they felt like he was not in it for the cause but for himself and i think that helps explain why he's finding so few allies right now um, kevin mccarthy is kind of letting him flap in the breeze uh, the, the only people that I've seen so far speaking out proactively for him are Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Jim Jordan. Uh, so he's not, you know, the, the the Republican Party of 2021 knows how to deal with something like this if they want to. They just declare fake news, circle the wagons, right. and, uh, you know, turn him into a, the next martyr. And they're not doing that. They're, they're, they're mostly leaving him on his own. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, Jen, it's kind of hard for him to call this a witch hunt, I don't know that he's used that phrase, but the Trumpism, when this investigation was started under Attorney General Bill Barr. Yeah, exactly. And that was um, that was one of the most surprising facts and a series of surprising facts uh, in this case. Um, but I think Alex's analysis is exactly right. And you add on top of it that these are allegations of a minor, um, you know, very, very serious allegations that, um, you know, no other politician is going to really defend unless there's strong evidence that this is wrong. And so far, we haven't seen that. All we have is Gates' denial. Um, and so, so you know, in McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy has said that he is not going to kick Gates off any committees, but if this turns out to be true, he mm -hmm. will. And I think the um, punishments would actually be much more severe than that. So, um, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see what more comes out on this. Right. Um, if there is one other issue, though, that has dominated this week, at least in people that I talk to, uh, it's none of the ones we've talked about, as important as they are, it's what we see on television every day out of a courtroom uh, in Minneapolis. Matt, I haven't seen anything dominate this since, oh, I can't remember 
win, but it's so unusual to have a trial, first of all, televised, and then to have this murder trial with all that incredible video seen across the country. Um, as a media observer, how do you rate the impact this is having, not only in the United States, but around the world? Well, to be honest, I think I might be the wrong person to ask about this because I spend most of my time watching uh, right-wing news, and Fox News has been spending <laughs> much less time on this trial than the other two networks are. Really? Um, yeah. It's really hmm. uh, quite obvious that um, while, while they've done some reporting on it and taken some uh, feed from the courtroom, especially on the first day, um, it is not something that they think is going to interest their audience. And so they are largely uh, ignoring this as it plays out. That is incredible. I didn't realize that. So, uh, Alex, what's, what is your take? Um, uh, certainly, most of the other cable and and networks are paying a lot of attention. To it. Yeah, I, I have also been surprised, uh, Bill, by how much the this is dominating coverage. And it's, you know, part of it, I think, is uh, the rules vary from city to city or state to state on whether you can have cameras in a courtroom. So it's uh, it happens to be that this is taking place in a venue, this, this super high profile case where we can actually have live feeds from inside the courtroom. Uh, and, you know, as a, as a journalist and uh, American, I, th I think it's actually kind of a great um, venue for transparency mm -hmm. you can see how this how this works and the it's been compelling i mean the the they have a lot of video um they have surveillance camera they have body camera footage they have uh they had testimony yesterday from the uh worker at the the convenience store who uh, initially called the cops and he did and several other witnesses talked about this feeling of watching uh, Derek Chauvin with his neck, or sorry, with his knee on, on George Floyd's neck and thinking that he was dying, but them not being able to interfere because they know it's a, it's a crime to interfere with the police investigation and the police were telling them to, to stand back and just how horrible he felt that he had kind of uh, started this because George Floyd tried to pass off a fake $20 bill. So, um, you know, I, uh, the, these, it's a really interesting point that Matt raises because if you see something like this dominating TV news, dominating um, websites, you know, there's, we have a lot of data about our audiences now. And uh, if you see something like that, it means you know that people are responding to it. And there's still, it shows that, you know, almost a year now uh, after those big protests last summer, there is still a lot of interest in the story. People are, are still wanting to understand and reckon with this. And uh, I think we can all learn a lot by actually watching the legal proceedings, not not the not just the protests in the street, the, the political speeches, mm -hmm. which all have a purpose, but we can actually learn something by watching the actual legal proceedings here. Well, Jennifer, um, I'm not sure whether you were already, I doubt it, with the LA Times in 1992, but I was uh, <laughs> doing television in Los Angeles uh, and I was caught up right in the middle of the what became known as the Los Angeles riots after the uh, four policemen were acquitted by a jury for the beating of Rodney King. And I watch this and I tremble at what might happen if the jury finds uh, ends up acquitting Derek Chauvin. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, it does point out, is it, there's a lot, it seems to me, I'd love your take, a lot riding on this trial and on this verdict in the sense whether it shows that as a nation we have moved on 
right, from almost accepting any level of police um, use of force as acceptable, and whether or not we've re really come to accept that the Black Lives Matter movement um, is important and real. I totally agree, Bill. And um, no, I was not with the Los Angeles <laughs> Times in 1992. You're probably in um, high school. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was in school, yes. Um, but I have, um, particularly last summer, I read up a lot on the um, the riots in 1992 and the, the, the fallout and the legislative effort. I mean, at that time, there was a thought that, you know, now this is on video and we can prove to the country that this is happening and we just needed video evidence of it, which was remarkable for me to hear in the year 2020 or 2021 when, unfortunately, these events happen on video quite frequently and it has not changed anything. But I think the um, the mirror of uh, 1992 and 2021 depending on the outcome of this trial, unfortunately, could take place. I mean, I, we saw one of George Floyd's family members saying that the world is watching. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so true. Um, members of Congress are watching, the public is watching. And after what we saw last summer, um, you know, the, the, the uprising in the public, I think, is something that we're going to see even more so in this case, particularly if the trial continues to be... Um, you know, such such a high-profile watch for so many people. Right. Um, yeah, I must say, I, th I also thought what was remarkable um, for the first witnesses called, uh, Alex, you mentioned uh, uh, several of them. Um, they were all just, um, they weren't experts. They weren't law enforcement people. You know, they weren't politicians. They were just average citizens, right? Ordinary Americans who happened to be for the most mundane of reasons in front of that convenience store at that time. Uh, and every one of them expressed guilt that um, they saw what was happening, they knew it was wrong, and that they couldn't do more to stop it. So I think it is having a, an incredible impact uh, around the country uh, and around the world. Uh, well, there are lots of issues we still didn't get to, but we are just out of time here, except for... Um, our favorite story of the week. Can't let you go without that. Uh, Jennifer Habercorn, Matt Gertz, and Alex Seitzwald, what caught your attention this week? You want to start us off, Matt? Sure. Uh, Longtime listeners of the Bill Press Pod know that I always use this time to focus on my favorite media conspiracy theory, <laughs> which is that yes. the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and the New York Times and are using their coverage to try to bring about the revolution. To that effect, this week I bring you the New York Times story, Jeffrey Epstein's Mansion to Undergo Complete Makeover. Apparently, a former Goldman Sachs executive uh, who recently retired and his wife have paid $51 million for uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, former home, a grand limestone building at 9 East 71st Street. Oh, uh, it is 25,000 square feet and tw sorry, 28,000 square feet of interior space, including 10 bedrooms and 15 bathrooms, uh, and it is seven stories high. Uh, the uh, couple promised yeah. that they're going to engage in a complete makeover physically and spiritually, obviously because of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, sex trafficking operation. Oh. Um, the, I think the, the funniest part of this for me was that the couple have hired a spokesperson 
uh, to deal with the times on stories like this, who is Stu Lozier, the longtime uh, Chuck Schumer and then Michael Bloomberg spokesperson uh, who I interned for uh, back in college when he was uh, at the Schumer office. Uh, so uh, to the, uh, DA, the DSA agents who got this story, I salute you. Well, uh, I hope they hired a witch doctor to come and cleanse the house. You know, how sleazy. It's sort of like writing, uh, renting Dick Morris's suite at the Jefferson Hotel. You just wouldn't want to be in that room where those things took place, seems to me. Um, Jennifer Habercord, can you top that? <laughs> that that will be hard to top. Um, mine is a little more serious. This is a story in Politico uh, from March 31st by Aaron Banco and Sarah Obermall. Um, the headline is Biden wants to give the nation hope, but a jump in COVID cases is complicating things. Um, this was a really troubling story to me because it indicated that there's some uh, disagreement in, in the White House about how to approach COVID right now and whether to call this a surge um, which, of course, we know there's a debate about surge and how right. we discuss the border crisis. Um, uh, but but this is worrisome because, you know, as we've mentioned before, it looks like we're at the end of the tunnel. There's a ton of hope that we're at the end of the tunnel. But let's actually make sure that that's, you know, the, the, the sunlight and not a train coming down our faces. Right. It is a real attention there inside the White House because um, uh, they don't want to admit, right, that there's a surge that we're really making a lot of progress, but the numbers seem to indicate that we still got a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, how about you, Alex? What caught your attention? Uh, there was a very fun and, and I think poignant story in the Washington Post style section by Ashley Fetters about uh, vaccine line jumpers and how it's putting strains on <laughs> Matt is not Matt is not. Oh, I was just going right? to say, yeah, for, for those of us like like me, who I have not got an appointment yet. Uh, and I feel like all my friends are getting vaccinated without me. And I, I have this this uh, intense FOMO about it. There are lots of other people who who share my my feelings uh, and some of whom who are now there's the, the lead anecdote is these two friends who were both, uh, you know, showing up at pharmacies in the late in the afternoon to try to get mm. any extra doses that might have been mm -hmm. left over. But then one of them. Uh, essentially lied, we assume, on, you know, one of the uh, forms and got an appointment. And the other friend is now not sure if they will ever be able to be friends again. Uh, so <laughs> a, a, a both quotidian and universal uh, COVID story that I appreciated. Well, I have a COVID story, too, uh, as my favorite story of the week. Um, you know, we heard a little earlier, um, Dr. Walensky from the CDC, the president, Dr. Fauci, are all um, encouraging people, even Donald Trump did, and so did Mitch McConnell, encouraging people to get vaccinated. Uh, that is uh, the right thing to do. Uh, with the voices of the politicians maybe ringing on deaf ears, um, some, as you've probably seen, some companies and uh, businesses have uh, done what they can to encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, for example, uh, the Mar Markin Gar Market Garden Brewery out in Cleveland, uh, you show a proof that you've been vaccinated, you can get a beer for 10 cents at the uh, in Cleveland. Uh, Chobani uh, yogurt, I have a Chobani yogurt every morning for breakfast, by the way, a little plug there. Um, they are giving away at many sites, vaccination sites, a free uh, sample of Chobani yogurt. Uh, out in Cleveland at the Cleveland Cinemas, 
you show you've been vaccinated, you get a 44-ounce popcorn, serving of popcorn free. That's a lot of popcorn uh, free uh, at the Greenhouse in Wald Lake, Michigan, which is a, get this, a medical marijuana dispensary. You walk in with proof of vaccination, you can get a free joint uh, if you're over 21. Now, if there's any incentive to get vaccinated, there you go. <laughs> and the one that perhaps got the most attention is Krispy Kreme that has offered those vaccinated a free donut every day until the end of the year. Uh, anytime, any day, every day, you can walk into Krispy Kreme uh, and get a free donut. What I love is that there was a lot of controversy about that, saying this is not a very healthy response to the COVID crisis. And the head of Krispy Kreme said, come on, we're not talking about an endless supply of donuts. We're only talking about one donut a day. I guess that's better. <laughs> that means you don't die of COVID, you die of obesity. I'm not sure. That is just so many donuts. That <laughs> is a lot of donuts. <laughs> One for me between now and the end of the year would be, would be plenty. All right, so there we go. No excuse not to get vaccinated, for sure. Alex Eitzwald from NBC, Matt Gertz, Media Matters for America, Jennifer Habergorn, rather, LA Times. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Great, thank great wrap-up of the week. Uh, and we thank all of the rest of you for listening, for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. It's always good to have you with us. We want you to take care of yourselves. Have a great weekend. Happy Easter. Take, uh, take care. Wear that mask. And then come on back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 